In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hadith kad amrin wawlil baited maria azinan. In surah, this means, psukhli kud meritali, al-baited maria zalan, should zalan. And in English, it means, I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is the antiphon between the two lachumara that we say during Ramsha. In Sunday Mass, we say, Ta'ul mawdayul maria wal mizmar la Ramsha, we say, I rejoice when I heard them say, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is the psalmist expressing the joy that fills his heart when he goes to the temple. The temple is the house of the Lord. But beyond the temple, the house of the Lord is not just for the Jews, the temple in Jerusalem, or for, for us, the four walls of any church. That's definitely the case. But it also gets centered in the human heart. In the human heart, we are able to go into our hearts and there find God and there make a house for God wherein we can dwell and where God can dwell with us. Wherein we can go and commune, dwell, live with, and be in the presence of God. How exactly can we do that? Because once we are able to do that, we find true joy, without which... We'll always be searching. Once we have God in our hearts, in which we commune with him, we communicate with him, we dialogue with him, wherein he is the king of that heart, where I feel consoled, comforted, and really at home, wherever God is. Once we're able to get there, we've really achieved salvation. We've already begun living the life of heaven already in this life. And this is the lives of the saints. How exactly do we get there? In the Gospel reading today, we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry from the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus goes to the synagogue and now takes the seat of the rabbi, the teacher. And he grabs from the prophet Isaiah and he reads the prophecy of Isaiah that God will send his messenger, the Messiah, the anointed one, to proclaim release to the captives to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. What exactly is the prophecy? In short, it's a prophecy of freedom. God is promising freedom. He's going to send his Messiah to free his people. The acceptable year of the Lord is the Jubilee year in ancient Israel. Every 50 years, all of Israel would go back to a kind of equilibrium. All debts were forgiven, slaves were made free, everybody that owed anything, everything was equalized immediately. And you basically start over again. You are free from all of your debts and everything that you owe. The acceptable year of the Lord is that Jubilee year, which the prophet Isaiah is saying, when the Messiah comes, this is what he's going to proclaim for everyone. Jesus comes to free us. He comes to give us freedom. Freedom is what we're made for. Now this sounds kind of weird for a Catholic to say. Because why? The great virtue in Catholicism is obedience. We all have to be obedient to the church. We all have to be obedient to 
the law of the church, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, Scripture, Jesus' commandments, etc. Everybody has to be obedient. Priests have to be obedient to their bishop. Uh, the bishop has to be obedient to the pope. Uh, the pope has to be obedient to the tradition of the church. Monks have to be obedient to their abbots and to their rule of life. Nuns have to be obedient to their mother superior, and so on and so forth. Everybody has to be obedient to somebody. Nobody is without obedience. Why obedience? Well, for the sake of love. But it has to be obedience and freedom, and this is kind of the point. I have to freely choose to be obedient to God through whatever means God gives to me. Otherwise, it's not really love. The second that it's forced, coerced, the second that I have to do something and it's being forced upon me, I'm no longer doing it of my own free will, and therefore it's not an act of love. I mean, imagine in a, a spousal relationship, right? If, uh, if the wife just says to her husband, it's Valentine's Day, you better get me some flowers today. I mean, you know, and she's like, okay, I'm going to get you some flowers. Don't worry about it, you know? Uh, that's not really an act of love at that point. It happens all the time, by the way. Um, it's not really an act of love. So, love has to be done in freedom. But how is it that freedom and obedience can go hand in hand? How is it that Catholicism says obedience is a great virtue that, that allows us to love God fully, and yet freedom is what we're made for? How do we balance these two things? They seem like they're contradictory. How can we be obedient and free at the same time? Freedom from the modern societal perspective is not true freedom. We tend to think of freedom as what we would call licentiousness, which is really a vice. Licentiousness, the license to do whatever we want. That's, that's what freedom means in the society around us these days. License to do whatever we want to. Freedom without limitation. But just a, a, thinking about that really quickly, we all understand, if I'm free to do anything that I want to do, I'm going to be a slave very quickly. I'm going to be a slave really quick. Just think about the most obvious example of this. If, I, if, if one is free to do drugs, and then he starts doing drugs, very soon after that, he's not going to be free anymore not to do them. All of a sudden, his freedom is stripped from him. He is addicted. And now, he's no longer free not to do the drugs. He's made himself dependent on them. That's not freedom at all. I'm, one is free to do whatever he wants to sexually, free, sexual freedom. This is what the 1960s have brought us and have stayed with us and just kind of progressed ever since. Has not brought anybody any kind of freedom. Has only enslaved people to their various sick addictions. Freedom to do whatever I want to whenever I want to is going to ensure that I'm a slave and not free. But that's kind of the point, you see. In the Bible, there's this great battle that's, that's described to us for our soul. The world and God, both of them are fighting for our soul. The world, not the world as in the physical world, this is how a lot of people misinterpret it, the world is not bad, it's good, it's made by God. What St. Paul calls the flesh, is not, doesn't, he does not mean the human body, says that the flesh is evil. He doesn't, he's not talking about the human body. He's not talking about the material world. He's talking about a system. He's talking about the power that reigns in the world, the powers of the world 
that seek the soul of human beings for their own benefit. The power of the world and of the flesh, this is the power of tyranny. This is the power of like a dictator. A dictator does not see his subjects as persons in their own right who are owed the dignity that God desires them to have. A dictator sees all of his subjects only in reference to himself. If there's a tyrant who's the leader of a, a government or something like that, if there's a tyrant, he sees all of his people as ways to take advantage of them for his own benefit. He's going to get rich off them. He's going to get power off of them. He's going to maintain his power through them. They exist only for him. And when there's an uprising against him, he wipes them clean. That's why t tyranny always ends in some kind of bloodshed. Because the people feel their natural freedoms are being taken away from them, and they rise up, and then the, the powers that be go and slaughter them. The world, this is the power of the world, which even besides, let's say besides government, in many other forms we see this. Companies, corporations today have reduced the human person, their subjects, down to just a consumer. You and I are just consumers for, for example, Amazon or Target or something like that. We don't exist as human beings. We're just numbers that are attached to us. We're just things that, we can, that, that can be sold something for a profit. For politicians, we're just another vote that can put somebody in power. The world will enslave us for its own benefits, and by doing that, really consume us at the end of the day. Whereas God is also a power in the world that seeks our own benefit. He doesn't seek to consume us but to give us freedom. He doesn't seek to consume us. God doesn't need us. God made us for our own sake. He made us so that we can be happy. We can share in his joy. He made us because he loves us, not because he needs us. He saves us for our own sake. And therefore, God seeks our soul not to consume us, but to make us whole again, and therefore to make us free again, and therefore to be fully human again, and therefore to be joyful in union with him, to commune with him again. That is what the psalmist means when he says, I rejoice when I heard them say, let us go to the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is my refuge. The house of the Lord is where I go to find my true humanity, to find the source of my humanity, which is my God. When I commune with him, I find my true joy. But try taking... Try taking away, try making somebody free. See what it's like to make somebody free. Find somebody that's really into something, really into social media, and take away their social media. What's going to happen to them? Take away their cell phone. What's going to happen to them? Take away someone's video games. What's going to happen to them? They get really irritated really quickly. Why? Because when we're addicted to something, when we're really fixated and obsessed over something, it becomes so much a part of us that we feel like it, it's, it's identified with us. We're identified with it. When it's taken away from us, some part of us is being taken away. And it's painful. So much so that people will say, often, we all do this, no, I'd rather just keep this thing, even if I know it's harmful for me, I would rather just keep it because I don't want to go through the pain of missing it. What happens when you try to make somebody free? What happens when God tries to make you free or me free? When Jesus comes in and he says, this is the acceptable year of the Lord. I'm going to free you from all of your chains. I'm going to free you from all of your addictions. 
I'm going to make you whole again. I'm going to make you human again. What's going to happen? What often happens? They rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. What happens when Jesus comes into our soul and tries to make us free, tries to take away our addictions? Not because he wants to take things away, but because he wants to give us something way better in return. What happens when he does that? We throw him off a cliff. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has come, Jesus, to save us, and that salvation doesn't just mean that, oh, now I believe in Jesus and therefore I'm going to heaven. Not at all. To save us means to make us whole. It means to reconstruct our very personhood, which has been chiseled away at by the various powers of the world taking advantage of us and making us addicted to its various means for its own benefit. To live a simpler life, then, is much better. To live a, a life wherein one is dependent wholly and fully on God is a much more joyful life. To live a life without all the distractions that keep us turned away from God is a much better life. To live a life in the house of the Lord, in other words, where all the distractions, all the addictions, all the stuff that holds us down from really living the human life, where all those are taken away and we can live in the house of the Lord in our hearts, that is a much better life. Let us strive for that life by shedding our various addictions, allowing the grace of God to come in and truly make us free no matter how hard we have to work and how much pain we have to go through to achieve that freedom. Amen.